everyone, welcome to episode 2 of Praise Dionysus. I am Jake Stewart, I am here by myself because James died. <laughs> He's not dead, he uh, is sick. Um, yeah, we didn't just have a huge falling out because of how his voice sounds. Um, he, he's unwell, and he doesn't believe it's COVID. I'm skeptical about that, but as someone who believes they had COVID, which is me, but was met with a lot of skepticism and sort of aggressive incredulity, I, I am not going to do essentially the opposite to somebody else, um, because I was raised Catholic, and, and I'm not going to treat somebody else that way. You know, so he doesn't have COVID, but he's too unwell to sit here and say nonsense with me. So it's just me this time. If it goes incredibly, uh, me, I may just get rid of him entirely. You let me know. <laughs> you know, let me know. Let me know what you think of that. Um, but yeah, welcome. Um, this week we're talking about three productions. When I say we, I mean me talking and you rolling your eyes and wishing I'd wishing I'd say something that you agree with a bit more. Um, we're going to be talking about three productions. We'll be talking about New Works' production of Romeo and Julia in Belfast. We'll be talking about Pony Cam's production of Anything You Can Do. And then lastly, Theatrical's production of the musical If Then at Chapel Off Chapel. Thanks for coming along and let's get started. So this week, out of five stars, out of five stars I would give this week for me... Let's go 57. We're going to go 57 stars because it's been pretty nice, largely due to seeing three shows, which is a nice amount. It's been nice having that much theatre in my life, especially especially after, obviously, uh, COVID took so much away. Um, that's been nice. Sorry if I sound tired. Um, no, sorry for sounding tired. I <laughs> have have given up on hypothetical, hypothetically phrased apologies, as I think you should as well. Um, sorry that I sound tired. I definitely do, because last night was when I saw um, the last show we're going to be talking about today is when I saw If Then. And I like met someone in the foyer, just like a man who's who, who went from being a stranger to now being a man whose name I know. And... We went out after the show and just like sat in a bar and talked about theater for a long time. I will not bore you with the minutiae, but it was a really good time. But that's why, um, th that's why my fatigue may be audible, but, um, I'm not going to let that bog us down. I'm also hoping maybe this isn't a hope. Maybe it's an intention. Maybe I haven't, haven't wrestled this idea yet enough, but the thought of just sitting here by myself talking to you guys, I would like it if, if this can feel in some way cozy and can feel in some way bearably intimate. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't know what it's going to be like to soliloquize like this. I have been, I've been grappling with something for the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, and I was going to bring it up last week when James asked how my week had been. And then I just didn't bring it up. Uh, not because I didn't want to tell James or you guys about it, but I, I think I was just, uh, I didn't have all the words ready or something. Um... But yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it quickly now, just in case someone finds it helpful or interesting. Uh, you likely won't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, grappling. Grappling. Grappling with the, <laughs> the concept of liking things um, is what I was dealing with. And I'm still dealing with it, I suppose. Um, I, I, the way that my brain chemistry works is I'm just very prone to addictions of any sort. Um, kind of anything. Uh, <laughs> like if it's a thing that is in any way likable, um, there's every chance that I will like it, then I'll like it too much. And then I will just devote my existence to it. Um, 
that's just that's that that's the way that I I you know quotation marks function and so so throughout yeah last week pre podcast and before then and since then I've been thinking about my I suppose my subjective personal capacity to like something to whatever the the, the normal extent is and and what it means to even like something in a way that like maybe in the way that it's different in the way of liking something intellectually or liking something spiritually. And the grappling, I guess, um, <laughs> is, you know, is about looking forwards and, as I'm sure you all do, with things inside of you and outside of you, imagining what life will be like um, uh, going forward with that in mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what the end of history delusion is? This is sort of out of nowhere, but I think it's interesting. Uh, it's the belief that the way that you are right now is the way that you'll always be. I just, I just like to bear that in mind sometimes when really not thinking about anything like what I just mentioned. Um, but in, in the current state that you are, what you care about and what you like and who you seem to be is not going to be the person you are even tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I had been grappling with and again continue to grapple with and I will keep saying grapple uh, is, is how life will be, at least in my mind, uh, going forward wondering how much I'm supposed to like things and how much other people like things. Um, I've said like more times than a valley girl would have said like in a similar time period. And that comment immediately felt misogynistic. (laughs) Um, So this is what this week is going to be like. Just me talking to you. Uh, Please call in if you'd like to interrupt. Uh, Yeah, let's get started talking about some shows, I think. Otherwise, this week has been good. Um, This week has been good. Hence all the stars, just in the way of um, a friend came down from Sydney after he's been overseas for a really long time. He's a really sort of, you know, talented designer who's been in um, Dubai for a while. Um, And it's just always so magical when he comes down because, yeah, seeing him feels like a, I don't know, feels like a brotherly reunion or something. Um, So that's always really lovely, him and his... Astounding fiance. She's yeah. She's just an angelic, talented creature as well. Um, and that was that was just really lovely. Really good to see them. They're planning their wedding, and it sounds like they're handling it, but it also sounds wildly stressful. <laughs> um, so yeah. So if you're planning on proposing to me, I can currently make no promises about how well I will fare with preparing the event itself. Okay, let's talk about theater. Okay, so I used to think that there was nothing in Cheltenham. Um, I This has been a theory of mine. I have now, of course, gone to Cheltenham and have disproved this theory, but like only to an extent. Um, as being a person who cannot drive for everybody's safety, I had to get a train to Cheltenham to see New Works Youth Theatre's production of Romeo and Julia in Belfast. Uh, so, yeah, got to Cheltenham, had to walk to this like beautiful warehouse space that this theatre exists in. Um, but yeah, it, it was just kind of like lovely, loud suburbia, but nothing there. I know that you're yelling at me that there is a shopping center, but in my mind, shopping centers are kind of like the Vatican City. They're their own little self-contained ecosystem thing, and that does not count as contributing to a suburb. Um, sorry of all of the Cheltenham slander that I did not see coming out of my mouth, honestly. Uh, but yeah, got to Cheltenham, got there too early, had to sit in a, like an oval for a while and pass the time. Uh, but yes, this is the full disclosure part. This is me telling you that I only found out about this show because Jessica Harding, who was a friend of mine, she is in this production. Uh, so that that's how I found out about this thing, which I'm very grateful for because it was a very 
unique little experience that I got to have. Uh, so yeah, got to Cheltenham, found this space uh, where, where New Works seems to reside. Um, and, and this is like the youth theatre portion of what New Works does, which seems like really exciting new Australian work. This, again, is my first like in- encounter with these people, but I'm really glad they exist. Uh, but yeah, got to this wonderful warehouse space. Like, honestly, sitting in there, it almost felt as if, like, the look of the venue itself was almost like... It, it felt kind of like it could have been built by a handful of 15-year-olds who ran into this like into the country and then built their own theater space and they were also super into the aesthetic of rent the musical um and then and then we sat down to watch the show and it really had that community family energy of like it felt like i was the only one in the audience who didn't have a cousin in the show which was lovely so what is the show? The show is called Romeo and Julia in Belfast. It is written by David Dunn. David Dunn did the the, the book. Uh, it's a musical. And Meg Dunn did the songs. And yeah, presented by New Works Youth Theatre. And it's a musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the leads are both are both women. Actually, both girls, I suppose. Like they 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 are played by young performers, and textually they are girls. They're girls. And yeah, it's a musical. It's recontextualized to modern day Belfast, which I double checked is in Ireland. I'm pretty notorious for confusing Ireland with Scotland at any given opportunity. Um, I was going to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival a few years ago, and up until maybe two weeks out before leaving, I fully thought that we were going to Ireland and not Scotland, which is where Edinburgh is. Uh, so this musical, this musical um, set in modern-day Ireland, uh, it's and with the whole Capulet Montague thing, they've replaced it with Protestantism and Catholicism. And the script itself doesn't leave much of Shakespeare's words themselves, which I think is always a really exciting, exciting move. But yeah, some of it, like the the greatest hits are all still in there. Um, You still get the, it is the East. You still get the story of more woe. Um, You get all, you get all that stuff. But otherwise it's, it it feels super duper new. Um, The, the cast is really impressive. So I'll start off like before the show even began, we're all sitting in this wonderful space looking at this, I don't know, sort of constructivist wooden set thing that looks really exciting. Um, we're sitting there and who I believe the director comes out and tells us that the actor to play Romeo is unwell. And so there's an understudy coming on and it's like, oh my God, thrilling. What? What a twist. And then what ends up happening is the role of Romeo is then to be played by a talent. Oh my God. Uh, a girl named Kira, I think it's McGouchy. I'm sorry, Kira, for not reaching out and confirming with you. Kira Magachi comes out um, and she's like in year nine, apparently. And she's got book in hand because she was like tossed this role, I think that day or the day before. And oh my God, she's astonishing. Like, Like irrespective of the book that she's holding, like irrespective of holding the script, she somehow managed to memorize a bunch of it and is gripping. Like speaking from a position of no pity, (laughs) <laughs> which she deserved. She was an enthralling performer to watch do her thing. Um, I, I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know how she managed to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, and, 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 and just to dwell on this fact for a while, like, it was also just a credit to these young performers. Like, my friend Jessica herself is 18, and those around her, like, beyond some of, like, the parent characters, it seems like everyone in the show was somewhere between sort of 14 and 20 years of age, which is bonkers. Um, but uh, everyone managed to so seamlessly and beautifully work songs that they had to change, like, the 
kind of, it, it, like the pronouns of or the person they were addressing of so that the more rehearsed cast could replace Romeo's contributions to musical numbers and having to do all this like seamless choreography and blocking around Kira stepping in for Romeo was just a remarkable effort that they pulled off. Um, yeah, it's a real credit to to all of them, Kira especially, but also the flexibility of these performers. Uh, it was It was spectacular. The music itself was all very, like, you know, effectively, like, hustly and bustly and very scene-setting and mood-setting and, and romantic when it needed to be. Um, but, yeah, if anything, it was more of, like, a like a audio environment for the story to hang within and for that reason was really effective and cool. Um, yeah, and the, the dancing was also, you know, energetic and, and, and funky. Um, but, yeah, I'm just going to dwell briefly on my pal Jessica, whose voice I'd never heard before was... Startling, like, startlingly lovely. It was, it was that sort of like, like the, 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 it sounds like what I imagine it would sound like for like a, like a, like a redheaded Scottish woman sitting alone in a field singing about a lost love, like that tone, like that warbly low kind of like, that. imagine that, but good and coming out of Jessica Harding. It was, yeah, it was like moving and in some ways, very traditional sounding, which maybe means nothing. I am not a songstress, but that that's how I would describe it. So that was, that was wonderful to hear coming out of her um, playing Julia. On top of that, people I'd like to single out, I'd like to jump in with um, Lydia Soroto, who was one of the four band members. So she was playing the piano throughout the piece and then also came in to play one of the star-crossed lovers' mothers. Like she was playing Julia's mother and it was, even if she were just performing one of these tasks, it would have been astounding work. But she went from being a clearly fantastic pianist to then leaving her piano, dipping out backstage, and then popping into scenes to play this mother with an equal level of just finesse and energy that was just like a credit to her and just added this very uncommon dimension to 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 an onstage performance it was really great and to see her like nail these dramatic scenes of like what are you doing your father's gonna hate this why are you a lesbian to then going out and then playing the piano again just you know just next to the saxophonist was just uh, you know just a nice little additional treat for everybody i think and also really added to what is so charming and fantastic about the independent and community theater energy of the whole situation i was just really grateful for it and for her Additionally, something that was super magical about this production and about everyone in it was this this vibe that was very, very well embodied and exemplified by the performance of uh, Jack Edwards, who played Tybalt. Throughout the entire thing, just had this, to, to an extent with everyone else had, it's like, in my mind, since seeing it, I can only kind of liken it to, and what I'm describing now is like, what is so great about young people making theatre and and something that I think is very characteristic of community theatre especially. I I liken it almost to when you're watching a musician play, and let's say a pianist, because I've still got Lydia on my mind. <laughs> um, when you're watching a pianist play and you look at their face and you can see that they're completely lost in what they're doing and and that there's nothing sort of like self-conscious or vain about the way that, that their face and likely outside of their hands that their body is engaging with the task they're undertaking, which is one of just sort of pure self-expression and artistry and craft. And there's something similarly so stripped back and vibrant and honest about the way that let's talk about these, like this cast specifically, like all these kids in this show, there's just nothing self-conscious or constructed or 
making an effort to be, I don't know, like super gorgeous or well, like look, they're not trying to look photogenic and they're not trying to, I don't know, look super cool, you know? They're, they're just trying to like service this plot and exist in this production and and showcase the energy and passion they have for the story that they're telling. And, and for that reason, it was just like this extra level of moving, which again, I think is just so characteristic of this type of theater. And yeah, and I just wanted to single out Jack Ed- Jack Edwards because he he was like his energy and commitment to everything was just so exciting, and he really embodied all of those things. Um, but as they all did, it was just such a strong cast, um, and they were just really fun to witness. Um, I also want to bring up Stephen Antoniades, not to spoil Romeo and Juliet for you, but in the scene where so he's playing a character named Flynn, but it's essentially Mercutio, and in the scene where he gets stabbed and dies and he does all the plague on both your houses. I've seen a lot of productions of Romeo and Juliet in different versions. And I am being completely honest with you when I tell you that this is definitely my favorite version of this scene that I've ever seen. I, I, I was not letting myself cry because again, I was someone that only knew one cast member and I was at a performance that felt like it was just for family members and like their high school friends to come and see. And so I did not want to be sitting in the front row crying, uh, <laughs> you know, because of self-respect or something. Uh, but but truly, Anthony and, and those in the scene with him too, but Anthony in this scene when he was like wishing a plague on both of these houses was tremendously moving. And I haven't even come to grips with exactly why that is the case. Obviously it's largely due to the honesty that was existing in his performance. It was also because I was like, what felt like, it was like watching, I've decided that he's 16 years old. In my mind, I don't know how accurate that estimation is, but it felt like I was watching a 16 year old kid die in the street and that's devastating. And then on top of that, it was also the awareness that this young actor is committing so tremendously to this role and this moment. And again, in a a way that had no self-consciousness to it. It was just like this kid had been told to perform his demise and it was just so moving. (laughs) Um, Yeah, ask me about it in person. I will will continue ranting, not with much more specificity or profundity, but I I just really want to applaud his efforts because again it's the best Mercutio death I've ever witnessed I will say one thing one thing which I'm not uh, I'll say this one thing the set beautiful it was wooden and transformative and things were on wheels and whatnot it was really great um I'd say one concern that kept popping up for me is their use of uh chairs and some of the blocking uh, a lot of people die and I and again I'm not trying to spoil this this little known play but uh, a lot of people die. I'd say from suicide, there's a lot more suicide death in this adaptation of the work, which is fine. More suicide. Don't, you're welcome to take that remark out of context. More suicide. Um, but there's a lot more suicide, which means a lot more dramatic falling to the ground. And because of the use of chairs, there were at least two times where people almost million dollar babied themselves. And that was a stress that, that I experienced. Um, that that's that's probably my greatest criticism of this piece, um, which is a credit to the piece, really. Um, yeah, that was really something. Um, but good job with the suicide. <laughs> More of it, because they took out the the whole miscommunication. They took out the oh no no poison left for me. There there was none of none of that confusion with the apothecary. Like Romeo just bails, and then Julia just 
full-blown legitimately commit suicide, and then her aunt is left to be sad about it, really sad about it, and then deliver the final monologue. And it's like, oh, <laughs> good golly. Um, all these kids are dead. It was, I, I'm really grateful for having gone to this production and yeah, I hope these, these kids keep, keep making theater and keep liking it, which is two different things. Yeah, it was a great time. All right, the rumors are true. I went to Northgate. I went to Northgate to see Ponycam's production of Anything You Can Do, which is a show that they put together for Darabin's Fuse Festival. Um, it was in a, this beautiful church space in Northgate. And the I'll read you exactly how they describe the show. Um, they describe it as being, um, it's about time and grief and sex and regret. It's about the stuff we don't say, shouldn't say, and have forgotten how to say. It's disarming, it's funny, it's irreverent, and it's painful. All right, so full disclosure part, I am a, like not just a huge fan of this company. I'm also like uh, good pals with a few of them, um, <laughs> friendly with all of them. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, especially Dominic Weintraub is one of them, and he's just one of the best people in the world. Um, but yeah, their, their, their work is always so exciting and bizarre. And even just the energy with which they produce work and find work to do and execute the work is just so tangibly passionate. And, and, and this work was no different. So yeah, we, we go in, beautiful church, sitting in Traverse, and the show itself is the members of Ponycam, and then there's so a handful of them. Then there's a handful of what the description says are baby boomers. So like the median age of them all seems to be like about 65. They, they announce the ages at the start and that's kind of like the mid range of the age. And, and then it's kind of just a series of scenes and activities and undertakings and even just like question and answer sessions of them all just exploring and appreciating and celebrating the differences between the generations and, and the, the, the difference in even just like the way their bodies work and oh my goodness it was there was this stunning moment I'll just jump all around the place there was this stunning moment where they lowered a sparkly gold pinata from the roof and it was just one of those moments that oh my god it was just like a beautiful image for starters and then pinatas are also of course just very fun and I don't know and it and it, and it also just highlighted the beauty and the height and the spectacularness of the space. I'll get, just get that dull image-based remark out of the way so we can talk about the more interesting things. Again, I spent this production <laughs> on the cusp of tears. <laughs> and and it was because, I suppose, of... I just say again because I feel like lately I've been spending a lot of shows on the cusp of tears. And am I going through a depressive period? <laughs> Who's to say? I'm sure my art will reflect it. And I was just so close to crying for so much of it because there was such an honesty to things. And I think to be less vague than that, I'd say something that occurred to me towards the beginning of the piece. And I think honestly, it was early. It was as early as maybe what I think was the very first thing that happened, which was Ava Campbell singing with one of the older cast members. And they were just sort of like singing to each other, this very sort of like, slow song that I'd never heard in my life, but it was really, really nice. And somehow, whether or not it was just their bodies in the space or the, the sound or maybe the words, none of which 
I can recall just made me start thinking about, obviously not just age, but about what nostalgia is. And the show itself really made me start thinking about how afraid I am of nostalgia, which is something that I'd never, ever thought about. And it's a credit to the piece that it was forcing me to have thoughts I'd never had before. But it, it made me interrogate why I find nostalgia to be so sad. And I think, and maybe you can relate to this. I don't know if I hope that you, that you do. It made me think about the fact that <laughs> hoping that I get to a ripe old age, that is my hope. The, the fact that <laughs> to look back on my life, I will, I will only be able to look back on things that I do. You know, like to, if I'm going to have treasured memories, then I have to be the person that lives them. And, oh my God. And, and, and the show made me interrogate that responsibility. And ugh, I don't know. And that, that, that just made me, made me blue. <laughs> not because I'm living badly and not because I don't think I'm capable of having a really wonderful life, but it was, it made me kind of come to grips with that, I guess. Um, which I'm really grateful for. And also speaking of nostalgia, it, it also, the show too, made me think of this other, not I guess another long-held fear of mine, which again, I hadn't thought about very much, but this anything you can do by pony cam made me, made me really roll around with was the fear of getting to a point in one's life where it's done this fear of living your life and then your life, whatever you describe your life as being like, obviously not the part that is just your brain has electricity in it and your heart is still beating. But if you were to make a list of the things that your life is made of, if everything on that list stopped and then you still have breaths to take, being in that position frightens me so much. And, and, and the show made me think about that as well. Uh, Jake, think of something more upbeat to say. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was wonderful seeing this many older performers on stage in front of me. That, that happens too infrequently. It was great to see them engaging with these younger performers because, again, that's something infrequently done, in front of me at least. That's so nice. Like... <laughs> intergenerational anything is so nice. Like the way that I feel like, especially lately, we've been factioned off into really every discernible faction because whether or not it's the, you know, the, 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 the broad sweeping specter of capitalism or whether or not it's a TikTok algorithm, but something seems really intent on breaking us off into little groups so that we can be more specifically marketed to or pitted against each other for the sake of, I don't know what, more accurate Nielsen ratings? I'm not sure, but, but watching, watching these people work with each other on stage because I think too having spoken to a few of the the pony cam members in the early days of developing this project I think one element of it was the idea of skill sharing and yeah intergenerational skill communication like almost like teaching each other things and even that in itself is so touching and also is primal the wrong word? For some reason that seems simplistic and vaguely insulting but but that activity is something so inherent to the old school idea of what a community would be like would be older people passing things down to younger people in order for the way of life to be maintained and for those younger people to survive. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. This this show was about so much and about so many things that I haven't lately really taken the time to think about. Um, and again, grateful for seeing this show too. There was a part where two of the older performers, um, they were doing a scene which, and having spoken to cast members after the show, uh, came to find that it was like originally scripted and then they didn't want to stick to the script for whatever reason, which I think was a great choice. So it was just like, yeah, these two performers performing this scene that felt, in many ways, kind of like ripped from, I don't know, an MTC drama or something. It was just like two people looking back on a confusing past relationship they both had and one had an ex-husband and and the two of them had some sort of like brief magical love affair and and watching them just underneath these you know the orange glow of these floodlights and and the tarp that they were standing on and like the crunch of twisties that was <laughs> that, had, that had littered the space by now it was just 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 watching these two people have in at least like the theatrical universe have what feels like a fairly familiar conversation. Um, but whether or not because of the performance that it existed within, or maybe it was, <laughs> I don't know, this seemingly melancholic mindset that I, I, I entered into this audience bank with. Um, and maybe it also just ties cleanly back into that thing I said moments ago about not wanting to still be living a life once you're done living it. Looking back on love that could have been or even love that was or believing that you know having a terrifying revelation that you are responsible for opportunities missed or you're the reason that what could have been the most magical thing in your life is gone now yeah thinking about that is just you know is always going to be devastating but the most recent time I was forced to face it was at this show and that's and that's why I'm talking to you about it um, and yeah, with with all that in mind, I guess throughout the piece, which is a which is a format that I have, have been obsessed with for a while, they just sort of ask each other questions. They asked each other questions, quite good questions. Um, and I don't know. I thought I'd just take my favorite one and ask you, so it's a thing you can think about. I don't know, because then we can all be, you know, I don't know, thinking these thoughts together. They asked this question a couple of times. It was, um, in what relationship are you most holding back? Um, one of the performers said that the relationship they were most holding back in was their relationship with the universe. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know what my answer is. Um, but yeah, maybe that's a thing worth thinking about. I don't know. Anyway, anything you can do by Pony Cam. Um, it was a good time. Okay, so the last show on the chopping block this week. Chopping block. <laughs> chopping block. Can you imagine if that's what we were doing? We were just sitting here, thumbing through shows, being like, you know who else should be stopped? This untalented person. <laughs> um, yeah, the last show we're going to be talking about this week is a show I saw yesterday. It's called If Then. It's a musical. Um, the music's by Tom Kitt, and the book and lyrics are by Brian Yorkey. It was produced by Theatrical, and it was on at Chapel Off Chapel. Um, and I, I saw Closing Night. I saw Closing Night, so you missed it. Just letting you know. Uh, yeah. Full disclosure part, I'm really good friends with the choreographer. Taylor True is astounding, and I'm also pals with Pasquale Bartolotta, who's in the cast, and and is consistently marvellous. Um, but yeah, so If Then. Um, it's a musical. 
Um, there you go. It's a musical. It originally starred Adina Menzel. It was like, it was the reason that there was this real sudden discussion about whether or not Adina Menzel had any talent at all. It really bred, I'd say even more so than when she started doing live performances of Let It Go and her voice kept doing unpredictable things. It's like her starring in this Broadway musical brought around a lot of conversation around like, is she just yelling though? Is it just screaming? Like maybe she can't sing. And like, of course that's a ridiculous thing to be suggesting, but it, it bred that sort of discourse. Um, if then itself, plot-wise, is kind of like sliding doorsy, you know, that beloved Gwyneth Paltrow number. Uh, so it's like Elizabeth is this, is Adina Menzel, comes back to New York City after being away. And then this seemingly meaningless moment in a park occurs where she has to make one of two decisions. And one is to go with one friend and one is to go with the other. And this creates a, you know, a multiverse. <laughs> this creates a fork in the road. And then we witness her walking down both of these paths at the same time throughout the show. And that's kind of the structure. And then she ends up with a boyfriend, not with a boyfriend, pregnant in different ways. And there's an outcome. Um, that is, is kind of how it works. Let's get into it. Um, first off, really great cast, really strong cast. The voices are amazing. I'm going to get the written down version of this woman's name in front of me. Um, where is she? Stacy Louise Camilleri playing the lead. She was so good, you guys. Like, her voice was stunning in the way that, like, she was hitting these notes that were so beautiful and large that it really felt like you could just swim around in them. It was just marvellous. And we'll get into my very few, <laughs> very nicely phrased criticisms of the script itself later. But what it starts feeling like, especially in the second half of the show, it really just kind of feels like big solo numbers for what was originally Adina Menzel, but now is Stacey Louise. It just seems like it was chances for them to just give them, to give this person ballads. So what it really starts feeling like a bit, again, towards, like in the second half of the piece, which I was very grateful for because Stacey Louise is so great, but it was just kind of felt like, okay, Stacey Louise, here's a song for you. <laughs> just get out there and nail it. And she would just keep nailing it. So that was, <laughs> that was a satisfying little Olympic event to watch, to watch Stacey Louise Camilleri do. The show was musically directed by Vicky Quinn. I don't know how to talk about the <laughs> the skill set of a musical director or what they've accomplished because I'm not familiar enough with how musicals work. Uh, but the music sounded great and was there. So I, I have to assume that she, she nailed it. <laughs> Good job, Vicky. I'm sorry for not having the language or skill set necessary to speculate upon your capacities, but it seemed great. The show itself too was directed by Liam Charleston. Again, I think with approaching this work, and this is me guessing, but I think a large part would have to like have to do with trying to make clear the differences between the two realities, like on top of all the other obvious things, trying to make it clear what the two different realities are and when we're watching Beth and when we're watching Liz, which, um, which I, I think he handled quite well. I only spoke to one person who uh, at the end said that they didn't realize there were two realities until interval, but only one person said that. And I think part of what made the realities different from each other uh, like a, one effort that was made that I really appreciated in trying to distinguish between the two of them was like different lighting states, um, which is similar to what they did in I Know Who Killed Me, that Lindsay Lohan movie where she played twins for the second time, which is a reference I made at the theater that no one understood and maybe no one will this time either. 
But yeah, lighting was a tool they used to try to differentiate between the realities. And so I figured that Jack Price, the lighting designer, had a hand in that smart move. As far as getting back to the cast as well, like Jade Boney, like Jade Boney was a really welcome presence on stage. Like she took what that could end up feeling like a, like a peripheral, maybe largely functional character, um, but she turns it into something that, that's, that's much more engaging and layered and, and delightful <laughs> than, it, than it necessarily would have been in another, like another person's hands. Like she was, yeah, this, like, this sparkly light that was, that was really great to see on stage. And similarly, Rory Ma, um, I was really, yeah, really into any time that he was around doing stuff. I w would have been really happy to watch him be in more scenes because he was just kind of um, a charismatic, surprising, interesting presence. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a glutton for that. So, yeah, go Rory. Thanks. Thanks for being yourself. <laughs> the show itself, though, like... So, so first off, the, the, the set itself, beautiful. The cast, really talented. That's all really good. Choreography, good. Again, I'm biased, but the choreography was good. Um, let's just get into the script. Because, okay, first off, and this is a private gripe that I have. Um, any song that is just, like, about New York City, I think is just a very often done thing for some reason that the, the examples that pop into my mind um and these are larger scale musicals i guess are shows like king kong which maybe you haven't seen maybe it's better that you haven't uh the king kong does it ghost does it if i'm remembering that correctly um i only remember it so vividly because it was just another example of rob mills nailing it and of course Gemma ricks just being immaculate like she's from the heavens um but they both, and many other shows do it too, where there's just like a song that is just about like, New York City, we sure live in New York. There are trains, there are buildings, and there's people walking around. There's just, we have enough of those songs, and I think we need to stop putting them in shows because they're never very good. And establish the things that could be established in very brief, forgettable dialogue, I'd say. Um, that's that. Speaking of <laughs> dialogue versus music, early on, and this is like an old school way of thinking about musicals, I suppose, but traditionally, of course, the songs come from heightened states of emotion. And the early pieces in this show do not come from those things. They come from a, a quite logical, um, almost, almost like, yeah, like logically persuasive place. Um almost from a position of like, I'm singing this song to win you over to my thoughts. And if you join in, it means you agree, which is not an invalid thing to do, but just a thing that I think maybe it's worth noting. Um, <laughs> that's that. Let's just keep this ball rolling on things that I personally find difficult to connect with. I thought one of her, so one of her realities, so in one she's called Liz and one she's called Beth. I only remembered the difference between them because Beth's instigating decision was a less interesting one than Liz's was. And in my mind, Beth is a more boring person's name than Liz is. No offense to anyone with, with either beautiful, beautiful name. But yeah, the one who chooses a more corporate... Like, to simplify the two options, it's almost as if she chooses love and family on one side and she chooses, like, corporate life on the other. And I was very grateful that on the corporate side of things, she had a very, like, charismatic boss walking her through everything that she was doing on the corporate side of things. It was played by Omar Mustafa, who I was just very taken by. He's just such a watchable man. He's just so relaxedly talented and just, yeah, really, really great. Like... 
I will never advocate for this ever again, but I wanted more scenes in offices because it meant that Omar would be there. Um, but that, that was an element of the show that made it unlikely to be in Jake's Hall of Fame just because I struggle to... And this is a thing that the show itself made me sort of like dive into meditatively was like I struggle to empathize with or connect on a very profound level with anyone who chooses a corporate lifestyle. <laughs> I think just on stage, but I think to an extent as well in life. If you're choosing to live in an office for so much of your life, I feel like in a, in a, in a relatively unconscious way, I think we are too inherently different to, I don't know, matter to each other or something. I'm not sure. I Saying that makes me think of this recent thing that happened when I was like, I was, I was at work well, I was, I was on break at work, so I was outside my workplace, my non-corporate hospitality workplace, and it's in the city, and I was, I think I just had a coffee or something, and I was just sitting, and I look across, and for some reason there's this, like, gaggle of business people outside in the sun on their way somewhere, but they'd stopped because I think maybe, like, their team leader or something had something to say about architecture. I'm not sure, but it was probably, like, nine of them, and they're all in suits, and the, the team leader person is talking to all of them and everyone's watching this person gesture towards like a glass window or something. Maybe they were discussing like a new poster to put up to advertise business. But one of them, one of the people, so this one guy in a suit in this group had lost interest in what this, this person was talking about and instead was like gazing upwards away from the focal point of the discussion, just what seemed like he was just glaring at the way that the sun was streaming in between two of the skyscrapers we were all between. And it was just this beautiful thing I saw that I thought, and of course I've romanticized it. Maybe he was, he was thinking about something really unremarkable. I don't know. Maybe he was the boss. Maybe he was, I don't know, but it looked like, and I want to believe that he was thinking about, how different life could be if he just made a different decision and he was going to make that decision today because <laughs> he wanted to spend more time looking at things being hit by sunlight than he wanted to spend standing in the city with a bunch of people in suits talking about a new business poster. I don't know. So that that's, that's why I struggled a bit with caring about some of the people in If Then the musical. Let's also go in more on the songs. The songs, a lot of them sounded quite nice. I think... I think the lyrics are what kind of stabbed me in the ear a bit. I think there are a couple too many songs. And like, obviously with the subject matter being what it is, it's, it's a show inherently kind of about decisions and the consequences of our decisions. But there were just too many songs that were essentially just like, decisions are things. You choose them, then things tend to happen after choosing things and that's how things occur. It's like, that was kind of like, what too many of the songs were. Like if you cut out all the songs that weren't about it being New York City and about things having consequences, you only have about maybe half of the score left, which I think is just an incorrect ratio. Um, yeah, that, and again, to dwell on the songwriting, there's this song that, that the lead sings like the lead character sings again, just to keep talking about her because she's such a miracle. Stacey Louise Camilleri, the lead character, whether or not it's Liz or Beth, I believe it's Liz is singing about because her like boyfriend is going back to war. Um, cause he's a soldier. <laughs> 
is going back to war and she's upset about it because it means that he's abandoning her and their child. And then she sings this song um, and it's, is it called I Hate You? It's called, I'll find it for you so I don't get it wrong. Yeah, it's called I Hate You. And the lyrics, and this is me, I believe, quoting them. Like, this is my memory of what the words are. It's like, I hate you, I hate you, I love you, but I hate you. And that is kind of most of the words in the song. It goes for the length of a song, and it's, and it's, again, obviously it's Stacey Louise beautifully, expertly navigating this lyrical wasteland, but it's like, and maybe this is me being stodgy or something, but that feels like it's cheating. Like that feels like, like truly it's just, I hate you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. And obviously, as we can all already tell, it's about how it's so difficult. Like it's complicated when like something tragic happens. And if you love the person that is the source of the sadness, like you love them, but you hate them. Like that's a fairly conventional adult thing to have experienced, but to then be in the position to write a Broadway musical about that experience. And then all you're going to give us is I hate you. And I love you spaced apart and repeated over and over again. Like that's not enough. (laughs) Like, that's almost like you've signposted the things that you want to pit, like put in your song and then you've forgotten to do any, like put anything in there. It's like you, you drew the paint by numbers, you put all the numbers in and then you forgot to color it in. Like, that seems like cheating. And I get that maybe they were trying to go for a thing of like, we'll just leave it up to the actor to make it like layered and complicated, which Stacey Louise gallantly attempted to do. And she made it a gripping thing to witness, but... I couldn't stop hearing the song being disappointing lyrically because, and maybe they were attempting a thing similar to what Stephen Sondheim did with that Maria song from West Side Story, how he wanted it to be obvious that this man had fallen in love with Maria. So he sings that Maria song, but he didn't want him to say the words, I love you because that felt too obvious. So he just got him to sing Maria a bunch of times and that's how he conveyed the love. Like maybe they were attempting to do that, but instead it just, to me, felt lyrically unsatisfying and and yeah across the board kind of that's a thing that I kept feeling was there was just an imprecision in the words like almost just like a lack a lack of specificity and even saying that I don't know if it's specificity or if it's poetry maybe it's just again maybe maybe it's really just a taste thing that I that I want more exciting language in my in my theater um but they were they were talking of course about unique, complicated, emotional experiences, and it feels wasteful not to be precise and interrogatory and excited by that idea. Um, and therefore it kind of felt like they were trying to paint a really complex oil painting, but they were doing it finger painting style with oven mitts on is, is, is how that left me feeling. Um, but yeah, but on top of all that, uh, <laughs> even with my lyrical dissatisfaction, um, it was, it, was, it was a satisfying time. It was engaging and it was different. And it was a, a story I hadn't heard before. And it, it, was, it was made by, made by exciting people. And yeah, glad I went. Thanks to all involved. It was a nice time at, at Chapel Off Chapel. Oh my God, you guys, we did it. <laughs> uh, yeah solo episode of praise dionysus um yeah thank you for for coming on this journey with me uh yeah the the coming week what's going to happen um james will likely recover um so cross your fingers for him whatever he has which we are all collectively agreeing is not covid but some other mysterious virus 
uh, whatever he has will hopefully stop taking up residence in his body and he will be back and ready by next week. By then, we will have, at this point, the plan is for he and I to see Wesley's production of Cloud Street, which I am so excited for. <laughs> Um, by then as well, Reagan will have opened again, R-E-I-G-E-N, nothing to do with Ronald Reagan. It's the episodic piece that I worked on with eight other playwrights with Periscope Productions. We open at the Meat Market Stables this Friday. Um, so by the time we record, we will have, that, that show will have opened. James and I will have seen it and, and we'll see what James is in the mood to talk about. I feel like I cannot take the reins on that. Uh, yeah, so we'll see what he wants to talk about. And the, yeah, other things may happen, but that is the current plan. Um, as always, please reach out if there's something you would like us to see or to talk about. And we have that email address um, that is praisedionysis at gmail.com. Um, I will sign this off first off with, with gratitude. Thank you again for putting up with me for this amount of time. Um, and yeah, again... Any opinion that, that I guess I have shared, I may already disagree with. And always remember that friends don't let friends become theatre critics. Have a wonderful day. 